Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, we can't help but admire what a wise and wonderful God you are. How you take great pains to solve the sin problem and at the same time convince all of your creatures that you are just and loving in all of your ways. Father, we ask that as we open your word today to study a little more about this judgment, that your Holy Spirit will be with us to guide our thoughts and to open our hearts. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of being in your presence. And we ask that you will be with us and guide us because we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. In our last presentation, we studied about the three distinct phases or stages of the judgment. We notice that there's a pre-advent stage, that is before Jesus comes, before probation closes, that involves those who claimed Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Those are the only ones that enter in perspective before the close of probation. And the reason is that Jesus is going to come to take them to heaven. So it has to be revealed that he has a right to take them to heaven before the universe. The second stage of the judgment takes place during the thousand years. And that stage of the judgment will be performed by the saints according to Revelation 20 verse 4 and 1 Corinthians 6 verses 1 to 3. Those who will be judged will be the wicked who are on planet earth dead, as well as the devil and his angels will be judged by the saints. The third stage of the judgment takes place after the thousand years. And after the thousand years, the wicked will resurrect, and then they will be able to see the records that the saints went over during the thousand years. They will be able to see the justice of their sentence, and they will bow along with everyone else in the universe and admit that God acted correctly in every single case. Now today we're going to study uh, the same theme or the same topic but from a different perspective. We're going to deal with Leviticus 16, the scapegoat, and Revelation's millennium. And I'd like to begin by going to the book of Hebrews chapter 8 and verses 1 through 6. We've already said in previous lectures that the earthly sanctuary was an object lesson that taught the way in which God resolves the sin problem. And I'd like to read this passage again because it sets the stage for understanding how God solves the sin problem in heaven, illustrating it with the earthly sanctuary, with the object lesson that we can see. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1 says, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. So the heavenly sanctuary is the true tabernacle. And then verse 3 says, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, 
it is necessary that this one, that is Jesus Christ, also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. And now notice verse 5. Who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So what was the earthly sanctuary and its services? The services of the high priest? They were what? Shadows and copies of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Verse 6. But now he, that is Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry. Inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So the new covenant is better because the blood of Jesus really removed sin. The blood of Jesus actually deals with the sin problem. The, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Now what we want to do as we begin our study today is take a look at the daily service in the Hebrew sanctuary. And I'm going to review it. If you read the first 15 chapters of Leviticus, you're going to find several different passages that speak about the way in which the daily service in the sanctuary took place. But basically, this is the outline of uh, what took place in the daily service. First of all, we have the sinner. And of course, the sinner is guilty and therefore should die. But of course, God does not want the sinner to die. And so the sinner can bring an unblemished animal, and let's use the lamb as our example, although there were other clean animals that were also sacrificed, but the sinner could bring an unblemished lamb, which represented Jesus Christ. And we're told there in several of the episodes that the sinner or the priest would place his hand on the head of the immaculate unblemished victim and confess the sin of that person upon the head of the animal. Now we need to understand the reason why it was placed on the head. What do you have in your head? Your brain. And the brain is the organ of the mind. Where were the sins placed upon Jesus? Where did he feel the tremendous burden of sin? It was in his conscience or it was in his mind. And so we find here that the sinner would place his hand or the priest sometimes would place his hand on the head of the victim and he would confess the sin on the head of the victim. In this way, the sin was transferred from the sinner to the victim. And then the sinner or the priest would take a knife and he would shed the blood of that animal. And the sinner could go home with the certainty of forgiveness. Because the sin had been transferred from the sinner to the victim and the victim had died in place of the sinner. This is the ceremony that is described primarily in Leviticus chapter 1 through chapter 15. Now I'm going to read a few examples from uh, these chapters of Leviticus so that we can catch a picture of this. 
Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 10, after speaking about one of the sacrifices, it says this, So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf. Now notice that this was an individual work. So the priest shall make an atonement on his behalf for his sin, which he has committed, and it shall be what? Forgiven him. Is this an individual thing? It most certainly is. Notice the personal pronoun used several times. His behalf, his sin, which he has committed, and it shall be forgiven him. Notice also Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 13. Leviticus 5 and verse 13. It says there, the priest shall make atonement for him, for his sin that he has committed in any of these matters, and it shall be forgiven what? Him. Once again, this is an issue of forgiveness, and it is an individual thing. Now notice Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2. This is uh, the penitential psalm of David, when David committed his sin of adultery and murder. And notice what David prayed. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, notice, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. What was it that was cleansed in the daily service? Was it the sinner or the sanctuary? What was cleansed was the sinner. The sinner was forgiven and cleansed of his sin in the daily service. Let's notice also Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11. Leviticus 17 verse 11, here it speaks about the sacrifices on the altar, and we are told, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And God is speaking, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Now an interesting detail about Leviticus is that if you read chapters 1 through 15, there are certain words that appear time after time. These words are, for example, sin, transgression, uncleanness, and iniquity. And almost every single time that these words appear in Leviticus chapter 1 through chapter 15, they appear in the singular. In other words, it's not sins, it's not transgressions, it's not iniquities, it is sin, transgression, uncleanness, and iniquity. And the reason why is because in the daily service you're dealing with the individual. The individual needs forgiveness, the individual needs cleansing. Now, let's look at the fulfillment of this. What is it that fulfilled these ceremonies that we've read about in the Old Testament? Let's go to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. How was the daily service fulfilled? With individuals. Let's notice. 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us, our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we confess our sins, whom does Jesus cleanse? The sanctuary? No, he cleanses us.
from all righteousness, He forgives our sins. Notice Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Once again, the daily service was an individual thing. The individual was cleansed. The sanctuary was not cleansed. Acts 2 verse 38. It says here, and this is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, then Peter said to them, Repent, and let, now listen carefully, let every one of you, is this an individual thing? Absolutely. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. For what reason? For the remission, other versions translate forgiveness, it's the same thing. For the forgiveness of sins, and you, once again, the personal pronoun, shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, is repentance an individual thing? Absolutely. Each one of you, it says. Is baptism an individual thing? Absolutely. Is forgiveness an individual thing? Absolutely. Hebrews 9, verse 22. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, And according to the law, almost, this is talking about the ceremonial law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. The word remission means forgiveness. Don't get confused. It's not a different Greek word. Whenever you find forgiveness and remission, it's the same Greek word. So notice that without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Now notice Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. We're looking at how the daily service was fulfilled. The individual work of cleansing the sinner and forgiving the individual sinner. Revelation 1 verse 5 says, speaking about Jesus, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Who did Jesus wash? The sanctuary or us? He washed us in the daily service. One final text, Acts chapter 5 and verse 31. Acts chapter 5 and verse 31. Speaking about Jesus, and this is Peter who is speaking, Him God has exalted to His right hand to be Prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel, and what? And forgiveness of sin. What was it that was contemplated in the daily service? Was it the cleansing of the sanctuary, or was it the cleansing of the sinner? It was the cleansing of the sinner, according to Scripture. When we receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, when we repent, when we confess our sins, when we trust in Jesus Christ, and we claim Him as our High Priest, Jesus takes His life and His death and places them to our account, and He looks upon us as if we had never sinned. In other words, we are forgiven, we are cleansed from our sin. Is that clear? But now listen, that's not where the sanctuary service ended. Because once the sinner was forgiven, the Bible tells us that the priest would take the blood into the sanctuary and he would sprinkle the blood in the sanctuary. Now, where was the record of sin at this point? The sin was no longer upon the sinner. The sin was placed on the victim. In other words, the, the, the blood of the victim was defiled because it had the sin of the sinner. And so when the blood was taken into the sanctuary, what happened with the sanctuary? The sanctuary became what? Defiled by the record of sin that had been transferred to the blood of the victim. 
Now, one question that people come up with, they say, how is it possible that a holy sanctuary could have unholy sin? <laughs> well, uh, I ask them the, another question. I say, how is it that Jesus Christ, who was very, very holy, could have sin upon himself? In fact, let's notice regarding Jesus, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, what we're told about Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26 says, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Was Jesus undefiled and perfect and unblemished? Yes or no? He was holy. But did Jesus take sin upon himself in spite of the fact that he was holy? Absolutely. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Here it says, For he, that is God the Father, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be what? Sin for us. See, he knew no sin, but he was made what? Sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now the sin that Jesus bore was not his own. It was alien to Christ. It was imputed to him. It was credited to him, but it was, not, it, was not, it was not his. However, he was a holy being that was bearing what? Sin. In the same way, the sanctuary is a holy place, but it bears the record of what? The record of sin. But it's not God's sin. Whose sin is it? It's the sin of the sinner that is placed in the sanctuary. Are you clear on this point? Very, very important. Now, let's notice what the Bible has to say about the transfer of sin from the priest into the sanctuary, and it was transferred in two different ways. Go with me to Leviticus chapter 4 and verses 5 through 7. We could take many examples from the first 15 chapters of Leviticus. I just chose some at random because we don't have time to study them all. Each one has their own nuance. Notice Leviticus chapter 4 and verses 5 through 7. This is one way in which the, the sin of the sinner was transferred into the sanctuary through the blood. It says here, Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood, in this case it's a bull because it's the sacrifice that's offered for leaders of Israel. And so it says, Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. That is the veil that divided the holy from the most holy place. So was the blood of the victim transferred into the sanctuary? It most certainly was. And along with the blood, what was transferred to the sanctuary? The sin that, was, that, the, that the blood was bearing. Now there was another way in which sin was transferred into the sanctuary, and that is if the high priest uh, or a priest in the holy place, ate the flesh of the sacrifice. Now notice Leviticus chapter 10 and verses 17 and 18. Leviticus chapter 10 and verses 17 and 18. Moses was kind of mad because they had not done this. And notice what he says to the priests who had consumed the sacrifice and had not eaten it the way they should have. He says, why have you not eaten the sin offering in a holy place since it is most holy and God has given it to you to bear the guilt of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord. See, its blood was not brought inside the holy place. 
Indeed, you should have eaten it in a holy place as I commanded. You see, sin was transferred into the sanctuary either by the blood or it was transferred into the sanctuary by the priest eating the flesh of the victim in the sanctuary. Now the question is, how is this fulfilled in the antitype? How is it fulfilled in reality? Go with me to Hebrews chapter 9, 11 and 12, because you know we just dealt with the symbolism from the Old Testament sanctuary, but how is it fulfilled in reality in the greater tabernacle in heaven? Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. It says here, But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and what? And more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, better translation is not of this creation, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the what? Into the holy place. I'm reading from the King James Version, which is more accurate. Once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So when the priest entered the holy place of the sanctuary and sprinkled the blood, that represented the fact that Jesus takes his blood into the sanctuary. And when we sin, our sin is transferred to Christ and Christ introduces us into the sanctuary. In other words, it's recorded in the sanctuary. The veil, in other words, represents the books of heaven. Does God keep a record in heaven of our lives? Does he keep a record of our words? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 that by your words you will be justified or by your words you'll be condemned. Does he keep a record of our works? The Bible says we will be judged by our works. Does he keep a record of our secret things? Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the last two verses say that even the secret things will be brought forth in the judgment. In other words, he has an exact transcript of record or record of the sins that have entered the sanctuary through the blood. Now, don't, don't be, um, you know, uh, don't think that this is uh, uh, something bad for you. Oh, my sins are written up there. Listen, if you put them in the sanctuary through the blood, you don't have to worry. Because if you didn't put them in the sanctuary, repented and confessed into the sanctuary by the blood, then you still have them upon yourself. So just make sure that you come to Jesus Christ boldly and you send the sins into the sanctuary so that when they're written in the books, forgiven is written next to the sins in the book. Now, when the sins were introduced into the sanctuary, what happened with the sanctuary? The sanctuary was defiled by the record of sin. They were forgiven sins, but the sins were still recorded in the sanctuary. So what needed to happen? At some point, the sanctuary needed to be what? The sanctuary needed to be cleansed from the record of sin. Had the sinner already been forgiven? Yes. Could the sinner go home and sleep well? Absolutely. The sinner could have a clear conscience because he had presented his sins to his advocate in the sanctuary and the advocate had placed the sins in the sanctuary covered by his blood. That's good news. You know, some people say, Adventists, they don't have any assurance of salvation because they believe your sins are written up in heaven. Yeah, they're written in heaven, but they're covered by the blood, which is really good news. You know, if they're not up there, where are they? They're here. You better send them up there. That's your greatest assurance through repentance and through confession and through trusting in the merits of Christ. 
So in other words, the sanctuary, even though these sins did not belong to the sanctuary, they're alien to the sanctuary, the sanctuary assimilated these sins, even though they did not belong to a holy sanctuary, just like Jesus took our sins that did not belong to him. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Now, was the sinner cleansed by the daily service? Yes. Was the sanctuary cleansed by the daily service? No, by the daily service, the sanctuary was defiled. So what needed to happen to the sanctuary? It needed to be cleansed. Does the Bible speak about cleansing the heavenly sanctuary? Let's read Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14, which we've looked at before. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14 says, And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be what? The sanctuary shall be cleansed. And what sanctuary is this? It is the heavenly sanctuary. We've already studied this previously in our lectures. Notice also Hebrews 9 and verse 23. This text tells us that there's something in heaven that's defiled that needs to be cleansed. Hebrews 9 and verse 23 says, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly, heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Was the earthly sanctuary cleansed by the sacrifices, by the blood that was shed? Yes. Must the heavenly things be cleansed with better blood than the blood that was used in the sanctuary in the Old Testament service? Absolutely. Now, when was the sanctuary cleansed? It was actually cleansed once a year on what is known as the Day of Atonement. So we need to take a look at the service of the Day of Atonement. According to Leviticus 16 and verse 7, on the Day of Atonement, two goats were chosen, and lots were cast, and one of them was going to be a goat for the Lord, and the other goat was going to be the scapegoat, or for Azazel. Now let's read about that in Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 7. Leviticus 16 and verse 7. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So you have two goats, one for the Lord and one for Azazel, and they're presented at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now, some people say, why in the world did this have to take place? Why did you have to have one goat for the Lord and another goat for Azazel? Well, the goat for the Lord had the purpose of cleansing the sanctuary. We need to understand that first. Now, whose sins were in view on the Day of Atonement? Was it the sins of all of the unrighteous that, that came to view on the Day of Atonement? Which were the only sins that were considered on the Day of Atonement? Only the sins that through the course of the year had what? Had entered the sanctuary through the blood. And some people might say, why did God have to, uh, have to examine the records in the heavenly sanctuary? Didn't he forgive the sin of the sinner when the sin, a sinner confessed his sin and repented and trusted in the merits of Christ? Wasn't that enough? Let me explain. Are all Christians true Christians? Are there, is there such a thing as counterfeit Christians? If you don't believe it, let me give you some examples. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, 
Are those Christians? Of course. Will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many shall say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not perform miracles in your name? Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And Jesus is going to say, yeah, thank you for using my name. Come, you're mine. No. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Does the Bible say that even some ministers disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness? Absolutely. Does the Bible tell us that there are wheat and tares in the church? Absolutely. Does the Bible tell us that the gospel net gathers good fish and bad fish? And they need to be separated? That's the judgment, by the way. Does the Bible tell us that there were wise virgins and also foolish virgins? Did they all claim to be Christians? Yes, because they all had lamps, which represent the Bible, and they all had a certain measure of, of oil. So is there such a thing as people who profess to believe in Jesus Christ, but they are counterfeit believers? Absolutely. Must Jesus bring forth the names in the judgment to show who truly repented of sin and confessed sin and trusted in the merits of Jesus and their life showed that they had a faith at work? Yes or no? Absolutely. In other words, the purpose of the judgment is to reveal if repentance was genuine or not. And only those who profess the name of Jesus Christ are actually even looked at during this stage of the judgment because, as I mentioned, when Jesus comes, he's going to take them home. So it's urgent to decide who he has a right to take home. He needs to reveal to the universe, these are mine. He's going to open the records and he's going to show whether they were genuine or not. And the heavenly beings are going to say, you got it all right. These are genuine, and these are counterfeit. And so two goats were chosen. Notice Leviticus chapter 16 and verses 8 and 9. It says here, then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell, and offer it as what? Offer it as a sin offering. So who does the first goat represent? The Lord's goat. The Lord's goat represents Jesus Christ. Now listen carefully to what I'm going to say. A few years ago, there was a theologian of the Adventist church, I'm not going to mention his name, who said that the Day of Atonement took place at the cross. And Pastor Jensen knows who I'm talking about. Now let me tell you this, there is one aspect of the Day of Atonement that was fulfilled at the cross. The sacrificial aspect of, a day of, of the Day of Atonement was fulfilled at the cross. Jesus does not die again in 1844. He died once for all. In other words, the death that he suffered 2,000 years ago is the blood that he uses to cleanse the sanctuary. In other words, the sacrificial aspect of the Day of Atonement took place at the cross, but that doesn't mean that everything regarding the Day of Atonement took place at the cross. It was only the sacrifice of this goat that was offered on the Day of Atonement, which represents the fact that Jesus 2,000 years ago sacrificed himself and gave his blood. Is that point very clear? Now listen carefully. In Leviticus 16, those words which were singular in Leviticus 1 through 15, suddenly become plural 
in chapter 16. It's no longer sin, it's sins. It's no longer iniquity, it's iniquities. It's no longer uncleanness, it's uncleannesses. Because what's in view on the Day of Atonement is the cleansing of the corporate sin of everyone in the camp of Israel. It's not an individual work, it's the cleansing of what? Of the record of sin in the sanctuary. Now let's read Leviticus chapter 16 and verses 15 and 16. Leviticus 16 verses 15 and 16. It says, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood, in, uh, blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the, bull of, the blood of the bull. And sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before, and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place. And now notice the words. Because of the uncleanness, actually it's uncleannesses in Hebrew, of the children of Israel. And because of their transgressions, for all their sins, is this a corporate work in favor of all of the people? Absolutely. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And you know, when the day of atonement ended, the sanctuary and the people had been cleansed from the record of sin that had entered the sanctuary. Let's read that. In Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 30, and then we'll jump down to verse 33. Leviticus 16, verse 30. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you, to cleanse you, that you may be what? Clean from all your sins before the Lord. Then he shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make an atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all of the people of the assembly. And when the Day of Atonement ended, everybody was clean. It was a clean people, it was a clean sanctuary, it was a clean priest, it was a clean camp. In other words, sin had been eradicated from the encampment of Israel. Now there's something very important. And that is that when the Day of Atonement ended, all cases in Israel were decided. In the fulfillment of this, when we've studied this in previous lectures, what happens when the service in the sanctuary comes to an end? When probation comes to a close? When the sanctuary has been cleansed? Is there a day coming when God is going to close the sanctuary service and He's going to say, He who is filthy will still be filthy and he who is holy will still be holy? Can we bring our sins to the sanctuary today? Can we still confess our sins and receive forgiveness and have those sins covered by the blood in the sanctuary? We can. But is the day coming when we will not be able to introduce sin into the sanctuary by the blood anymore? Absolutely. Notice Revelation chapter 15 and verses 5 through 8. Revelation 15, 5 through 8. We've read this before, but let's read it again. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Has, is the cup full at this point? Is mercy come to an end? Yes, the full wrath of God is going to be poured out. And now notice verse 8. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were 
completed. Can we enter the sanctuary today by the blood of Jesus? Can our sins go enter the sanctuary when we repent and we confess our sins and we trust in Jesus Christ? Absolutely, but the time is coming when we will not be able to enter. And it's not talking about physically entering, it's talking about entering by faith, by faith, coming to the throne of grace boldly, as it says in chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews. Do you understand how we can come to the sanctuary today in heaven? We come boldly through Jesus Christ. We also notice in one of our previous lectures, Revelation 22, verse 11, where it says, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he who is holy, let him be holy still. Does that have a certain ring of finality to it? In other words, there's a day coming where when you're going to still be filthy, the sanctuary service will have closed. We can't introduce sin into the sanctuary anymore, and therefore we will remain defiled forever. Now let's talk about the last event that took place on the Day of Atonement. Because what has happened is that sin has been cleansed from the sanctuary. Did you understand that the Lord's goat is sacrificed to cleanse the sanctuary? The blood cleanses the sanctuary? But there's still a very important ceremony that took place. Notice Leviticus chapter 16 and verses 20 through 22. After the sanctuary had been cleansed by the high priest, by the blood of the sacrifice, the Bible tells us that the, that the high priest would go to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. In other words, this is uh, in the court, the door that leads into the holy place. The Bible tells us that he would place both his hands on the head of the scapegoat. The sanctuary had already been cleansed by the blood of the Lord's goat. But now he's bringing all of the iniquities and all of the sins and he's going to place them, both of his hands, on the head of the scapegoat and he's going to confess those sins on the head of the scapegoat. Let's read about it in Leviticus 16 verse 20. It says, And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Let me ask you, had the sanctuary already been atoned for? It had already been cleansed when the scapegoat ceremony takes place? Absolutely. The scapegoat doesn't save Israel. The salvation and the cleansing of the sanctuary has already taken place. Notice verse 21. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. Confess over it all the iniquities, plural, of the children of Israel, all of their transgressions, plural, concerning all their sins, because of the cumulus of all of them, putting them on the head of the what? Of the goat. And shall send it away into what? Into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. Verse 22. The goat shall bear on itself all the iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Two characteristics. The goat, after the sins were placed upon him, he was sent to the wilderness to a land where there were no what? Where there were no inhabitants. Now, my question is, where is this ceremony fulfilled? Let's go to Revelation chapter 20 and verses 1 to 3. Revelation chapter 20, 1 to 3. We're going to look at some exciting stuff now. Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. 
This is after, immediately after the second coming of Jesus is seen in chapter 19. It says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit. That expression, bottomless pit, is a deplorable translation. It's really the Greek word abusos, which should be translated deep. Do you know it's the same word that appears in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 where it says, where it speaks about the deep. Have you ever read that? It says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the what? Of the deep. And you say, how do you know that abusos in Greek is the same as uh, tehom in Hebrew? Very simple. We have a translation of the Old Testament into Greek. Every time that tehom the word in Genesis 1 verse 2 appears in the Greek Old Testament, it's translated abusos. So what does the word abusos mean? It's speaking about the earth in what condition? In a condition where it is without form and void and in darkness and without any what? Without any inhabitants. That's right. So that is the earth where this is taking place. So it says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit. Once again, the same word, the abusos, the tehom, the place where there's darkness and there's, it's disorderly and it's empty or void. And, and where there's no one who is alive because creation hadn't taken place yet. And so it says in verse 3, and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. By the way, Jeremiah saw the, the, the earth in this condition. Notice Jeremiah chapter 4, and let's read verses 23 through 25. There are, very, there are many similar words. Actually, you should read from verse 19 all the way through verse 29. We don't have the time to read all of the verses, but we're going to read verses 23 through 25. Listen to Jeremiah describing what the earth is going to be like when Jesus comes. The earth where the devil is going to be bound for a thousand years. Jeremiah says, I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and what? And void, just like before creation week. And the heavens, they had what? They had no light, just at like at creation. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled, and all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, I beheld, and indeed there were lots of men. Uh-uh, it says there was no man. And all the of the birds of the heavens had what? Had fled. Let's read a parallel passage, Isaiah 24. Isaiah 24, and we're only going to read verses 18 to 23. This is describing the second coming of Jesus and what's going to happen when Jesus comes. Isaiah 24 and verse 18. Let's begin with verse 19. The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall totter like a hut. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it and it will fall and not rise again. It shall come to pass in that day, that is when at the second coming, when the earth returns to this condition, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of the exalted ones, and on the earth the kings of the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and will be shut up in the prison. Is, is, does Revelation chapter 20 talk about uh, 
Satan being shut up in the prison? Absolutely, but here it includes also his angels. The host of the high ones here are Satan and his angels. And it says, they will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and will be shut up in the prison. But now listen, this isn't their final punishment because it says, after many days they will be punished. How many are those many days according to Revelation? A thousand years. And then after the thousand years you have the new Jerusalem appearing. If you read Revelation 21 and 22, here you have it also. It says, then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed. Remember we talked about that when we said that there will be sun and moon, but the, you know they're going to be eclipsed by the glory of God. So it says, then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign where? On Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. That's Revelation 21 and 22. And before his elders gloriously. Now allow me to read you a statement from Ellen White on this ceremony of the scapegoat. She says, now the event takes place, this is Great Controversy 658, now the great, the event takes place foreshadowed in the last solemn service of the Day of Atonement. When the ministration in the Holy of Holies had been completed, and the sins of Israel had been removed from the sanctuary by virtue of the blood of the sin offering, See, sin had already been taken care of. The sanctuary had already been cleansed. She continues saying, Then the scapegoat was presented alive before the Lord, and in the presence of the congregation the high priest confessed over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions in all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat. She says then, In like manner, when the work of atonement in the heavenly sanctuary has been completed, then in the presence of God and the heavenly angels and the hosts of the redeemed, the sins of God's people will be placed upon Satan. He will be declared guilty of all the evil which he has caused them to commit. And as the scapegoat was sent away into a land not inhabited, so Satan will be banished to the desolate earth, an uninhabited and dreary wilderness. Isn't it amazing the parallel between the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament and what is going to happen at the end of time. Now most scholars think that both scapegoats represent Jesus Christ, but they don't represent Jesus Christ because one of them the Bible says was for the Lord and the other one was for Azazel. Notice Leviticus chapter 16 verses 7 and 8. Leviticus 16 verses 7 and 8. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. How can you say one for the Lord and one for the scapegoat? You say both are for the Lord. Obviously one is for the Lord and the other one is for the scapegoat. So really you have one representing Jesus and the other representing the enemy of Jesus Christ. Now some people say, well, uh, the Adventist church, they believe then that the devil is their savior because the devil bears their sins. Listen, let's read Leviticus chapter 16 verse 20 and you're going to see that we don't believe that at all. Had the sacrifice of the, the Lord's goat already taken place at this point? Had all of the sins already been cleansed from the sanctuary at this point? Yes. So really, what is it that cleansed the sanctuary? It was the blood of Christ. Only afterwards do you have this goat having the sins because he's the originator and the instigator of sin. If it hadn't been for him, there wouldn't be any sin in the universe. 
Notice Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 20. It says here, and when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, that is once he's already performed the cleansing of the sanctuary, it says, and when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring, what? The live goat. Had already sin been cleansed from the life and been cleansed from the sanctuary at this point? Absolutely. Now, furthermore, the goat for Azazel was presented alive. So he could not atone for sin. What is it that atones for sin? Notice Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood there is no what? There is no forgiveness or remission of sin. In other words, the, this goat was presented alive. He was not sacrificed for sin. Furthermore, and this is very important, the sins were imposed upon this scapegoat. Whereas the Bible tells us that the sins of us human beings were voluntarily taken upon Jesus Christ by himself. Finally, and this is the most persuasive argument, the book of Revelation follows the exact order of the Hebrew sanctuary service. Let me just go through it quickly. We don't have time to read all of the verses. If you read Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, these should be on your list. There it says that Jesus shed his blood and cleansed us from our sins. That has to do with what? With the daily service. Then, in chapters 1 to 3, Jesus is walking among the seven candlesticks. He's in the holy place. In the series on the seals, which is chapter 4 through chapter 7, Jesus is at the table of showbread. In the trumpet series, the trumpet series begins with Jesus at the altar of incense. Are you noticing how he's moving? First of all, the sacrifice of his blood in the court, and then he's among the candlesticks, then he's at the table of showbread, then he's at the altar of incense. Where would he, we expect him to go next? It would be the most holy place. Revelation 11 verse 19 says that, that the temple in heaven is opened and the ark of the covenant is seen. And then Revelation 14 the judgment hour message is proclaimed. See, the temple is open, so now you have to proclaim the hour of his judgment, what? Has come. But when the three angels' messages have been proclaimed, Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20, which comes right after the, the final warning of the world that the judgment is here, the world is divided into how many groups? Into two groups. The three angels' messages, the judgment hour message divided the world into two groups, just like the message of Noah. And then, the next chapter says that nobody is able to enter the temple. That's the passage that we read, because probation has what? Probation has closed. And then after that, in the very next chapter, we have the plagues. Is that the tribulation period? Yes. After the close of probation, you have the tribulation period. And then you come to chapter 19, and you have the second coming of Jesus. He's seated on a white horse, and the armies of heaven are coming with him. And then what do you have? In chapter 20, you have the scapegoat ceremony. Satan is bound to planet Earth in a non-inhabited land because all of his followers are dead, and the Earth is like a vast wilderness. And then after the thousand years, God makes a new heavens and a new Earth in Revelation 21 and 22. Are you seeing the sequence? Clearly in the sequence of Revelation, the scapegoat ceremony comes in the exact place 
where we would expect it according to the model of the Hebrew sanctuary of the Old Testament. Now you're saying, but what about the wicked? We've talked about Satan, you know, because he's the originator, the instigator. He's going to suffer the final penalty. But what about the wicked? Well, the devil's not going to, the, the sins of the wicked are going to be placed on him. Who's going to bear the sins of the wicked? The wicked. Because they did not sympathize with the work of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. In fact, go with me to Leviticus 23, verses 29 and 30. On the Day of Atonement, everybody in Israel had to be focused on what was happening. While the, priest was, while the high priest was cleansing the sanctuary, they had to be afflicting their souls and cleansing their lives from sin. Notice Leviticus chapter 23 and verses 29 and 30. It says, for any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person will, I will destroy from among the people. See, people had to fast on the Day of Atonement. They had to afflict their souls on the Day of Atonement. And they couldn't work on the Day of Atonement. You're saying, does that mean that we don't work since 1844? No. The reason why they didn't work is because their, because their minds had to be focused on what was happening in the most holy place. So any work that you have today that distracts your attention from being focused on what Jesus is doing, that he's cleansing the sanctuary and he wants to cleanse our lives from sin, we need to beware of anything that interferes with us gathering around the sanctuary because everyone had to gather around the sanctuary to focus on what the high priest was doing. In fact, the high priest had bells around the bottom of his garment so that Israel could follow his movements in the sanctuary. Can we follow Jesus in what he's doing? That's why God gave us the, the model in the Old Testament so that we could understand what Jesus is doing today. By the way, what does it mean to cut off from among the people? It's a very serious thing. Notice Psalm 109, 14 and 15 tells us what it means to be cut off. It means that your memory will be cut off forever. When the wicked are destroyed, because they bear their own sins. See, you can decide to let Jesus bear your sins or you can bury them yourself. There's two ways of paying for sin. Either Jesus can pay for your sin or you can pay for it. I'd rather have Jesus pay for it. How about you? Psalm 109 verses 14 and 15. This is what it means to cut off. Let the iniquity of his fathers, this speaking about Judah specifically, let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. And let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be continually before the Lord, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. And do you know where people were destroyed? Where the wicked were destroyed in the Old Testament when you had high-handed sinners? Leviticus chapter 24 verses 14 and 23 tells us that this happened outside the camp of the saints. Where are the wicked going to be after the millennium? The Bible tells us that the devil and all of the wicked will gather outside the camp of the saints. Exactly what we find in Leviticus 24 and verse 14 and verse 23. Now the question is, what should we be doing today? Many Christians today think you, you, we should all be having a good time in church and we should be jumping and dancing and, and uh, just having a jolly good time. Now is the time that Jesus is cleansing the sanctuary and we should gather there and through his power cleanse our lives from sin. 
Notice Joel chapter 2, 10 and 11. It's speaking about the second coming of Christ. It says, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun, moon, and sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? And then if you continue reading, let's notice Joel chapter 2, verse 12. It's describing the day of atonement. Verses 10 and 11 are speaking about the second coming of Christ. And then verses 12 through 17 describe the preparation. It says, now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Let's go down to verse 16. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out of his chamber and the bride from his, her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. This is all described in the Day of Atonement. What attitude should we have on the Day of Atonement? Through the power of God, we should be overcoming sin. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.